Hello and welcome to another weekly teaching from Vineyard Community Church, St. Louis. So, uh, I'm, I'm super excited about this series. Okay, I, I always got to look at the clock to synchronize that ending time because I don't want to disappoint David because of my deep love for him. So, um, the gospel with the poor. Whenever uh, I found out we were doing this, I was so excited, so excited. I've spent a lot of time around people that were uh, poor uh, and, and got down to the reasons why they were poor. Disabilities, addictions, trauma, all the things that marginalized people. So I was super excited. And I'm kind of excited because I'm still trying to figure this out. Uh, uh, we talked about Waymakers earlier. I'm the pastor of Waymakers. And it's a ministry specifically geared towards the poor, the disabled, the aged, the materially poor is what I mean by that. And so, so I, as I'm going through this and I'm in one of the groups, the group at Caleb's house, I'm just trying to figure this out as I go and learn more and answer some of my own questions. And so today's that just, just like another aspect of that process for me. So uh, um, uh, today we're going to be looking at, uh, I thought I was going to be doing the offering slide, so, oh good. All fixed. So today we're going to be looking at John 13 through 17. And now this passage isn't directly about the poor, but it has a lot to do with how we interact with each other and gives us some kind of key elements we need to understand in our life with the poor. And again, I love that title, with the poor. So, so much of my life, people talked about for the poor. What can I do for the poor? But with is really a better word. And I guess it was John Wimber that came up with that. Is that the title of his book, With the Poor? And so um, I, I, I love that because in the final analysis, the puzzle I'm trying to really um, solve is how do we have a church, this church, Waymakers, any church, where people of all sorts, and when I say that, I know in our culture, one of the primary things we think about race is race. That's, that's definitely included. But of all sorts, when I they say that, I'm talking more about economic disparities and intellectual disparities and disabilities and, and, and how do we all function together where one isn't pitying the other or only serving the other? How do they really function as a body? Because Paul's very clear that whatever group you have, whether it's racially diverse or not, economically diverse or not, it's supposed to be functioning as a body. And that the, and the least members of that body, Paul says, are indispensable. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that at Waymakers with people that are very, very disabled. How are they indispensable? Not just to our little church and down in Tennessee and Winnebago, but to all the church, the whole church. That's a big question, isn't it? And so it comes down to what we expect and how that's bent and broken by our culture and our expectations. So I think about this a lot. And so this today is me thinking about it some more. So we're going to look at John 13, 1 through 7. That's a really fitting scripture for us moving into the Easter season. As you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So I'm just going to, before we look at the text, I'm just going to tell you the story and talk a little bit about it before we actually look at the text. So the story of John 3, 1 through 17 is where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Do you all remember that? Is that unfamiliar to any of you? Something most of us have probably heard about. And so um, what's happened there is it's, 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 it's right before the Passover, right before Jesus is going to be arrested, tortured, crucified, laid in a tomb. 
And so these are his final days. He's doing some really important stuff in these days. He's kind of packing it in. A lot of stuff happens fast. So at the time this scripture that we're going to be looking at happened, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem, and we had the triumphal entry, as it's usually called in the, Bi- in, you know, the little headings in your Bible, and Palm Sunday, which we celebrate, when the crowds went wild, saying Hosanna, they were laying down their coats, laying down palm branches, welcoming him as, uh, as, uh, as a king. And so that's already happened. And so Jesus is there, and he's called all his disciples together for a dinner. And now John's account is a little bit different than the other accounts because John has a little bit different purpose. And I think since John's gospel probably was written later, the church was very familiar with some of the traditional elements of the Last Supper story where Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. John doesn't talk about that. He talks about other things. And so it brings us another facet. It's one of the things that's beautiful about Scripture is it brings different angles and different uh, the, the human element of, of inspiration, God working through these people and the purpose of these different books. So, so um, in, in John, he's talking about what's happened at the supper is this incident where Jesus is there, they're eating, and he gets up and starts washing the disciples' feet. And so there's a lot that's in that story, and we're going we're gonna to go through that very thoroughly as much as time allows. So but before we get into that text, when you think about Jesus washing someone's feet, I want to talk about what it's not, all right? Because we really want to get the essence of what this is. So what it's not is, it's not a team-building exercise. Have any of you had a job where you have team-building? Has anybody? Now, everybody that's laughing has been team-building. Now, now my former job, in case you don't know, I just retired from probation and parole after 23 years. And so, on to the next adventure. But but we used to have team-building, and team-building was a joke. And, and, And it was a joke in a number of ways, because... It was. It was. It could. It had the potential to be fun because it was a day you didn't work or you worked a half a day, and we would go to some park. And there in the park, we were supposed to do. The people in Jefferson City told us you're supposed to do things that build, that team build. I don't use air quotes very often, but this deserves it because I don't team build. I, I don't even really know what their expectation was. I'm like, are they living on some planet that? has different physics and laws that I don't have. Because, you know, you get a bunch of people together and, and team build, that's usually not what's going to happen, you know. When I think about that, I think about these traumatic childhood things, you know, like ropes courses and all. No. And so, and so, so my office was, 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 not, was probably one of the most uh, irreverent and disobedient groups <laughs> in, in the St. Louis area. And so we would, we would sabotage that in any way we possibly could. And our, depending on the boss we had at the time, they would usually just go, okay, we're just going to pay lip service to this. And we would do some kind of team building. And, it, and it all, in the end, it devolved to we would do whatever we want, and then we would have uh, uh, a trivia sheet you would hand out where you're supposed to write two things about you that people might not know, and everybody had to guess who it was. I'm like, go team, go team. So that did not increase morale, nor did it increase cohesiveness, nor change our uh, outlooks on anything. But, but so, so that's not what Jesus is trying to do here, you know? Not what he's trying to do here. The other thing he's not trying to do is uh, uh, use it as a weapon against the disciples. Now let me explain what I mean by that. I come from a, a tradition, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my family was all from the country. I moved here when I was very young. I don't remember living in the country. I remember little bits and pieces about it, but but um, and it came from kind of a holiness Pentecostal perspective. And I don't, I don't mean that disparaging in any way. I love those people. I love so much about their beliefs. And so 
I have vague memories of my mom when she would rarely take me to church of going to this, this church, and I can remember them doing foot washing. I mean, actually doing it, not taking it metaphorically. They got a tub of water, people's feet are wet, they're scrubbing the feet. So I knew it existed, and, but I, and I'd seen it. So, I, so flash forward, I'm 17 years old. I've talked to you about the first church I went to, storefront down Cherokee Street. Really, really crazy, really backwards. 20 people who just loved Jesus, sometimes liked each other, but, uh, but I learned so much there. I remember this was one dude, he didn't preach all the time, but when he did, something was going to happen, right? I remember one time he was up there, and he was, I mean, you, you, when you, the, the type of preaching I'm talking about is something you've probably seen on, on movies, right? I mean, screaming, pounding, boo, 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 all that. And, and one day, nobody, he, he got really upset because as he was preaching, he suddenly stopped and he said, nobody's saying amen. And he stopped the service and went home. We all went home. And it was like one of those moments you have when you're a kid when an adult says something to you that's supposed to have a big impact on you, and it, but on the, it has the reverse. You're like, going, awesome. And I was like, awesome. I don't like this guy. We're going home. You know, like on the Christmas story, think about what happened here. I'm sure this is worse than any punishment. You know, that was exactly what was going on. Well, another time, he was mad about something. And he probably was upset about something justified because I think some people were bickering. Now, I'm a teenager. The only thing I'm interested in is the two girls at church and Jesus. I'm like, that together, that's enough for me. And so, but some people were fighting over something apparently because he was up there talking about, you know, getting along. And then he, and then he said, and if something like, I can't remember the exact words, but he's like, and if this doesn't get taken care of, we're going to have a foot washing. And I was like, what? We're going to have a foot washing? And I knew about foot washing, but I'm like, really? That's supposed to fix it? And I was like, wow. You know, back then, I, I was starting to uh, uh, develop my own theology and my own understanding of Scripture. And, and really, the errors and excesses I saw really helped me form a better theology, as it always does for all of us. And so, so I'm there going, man, that doesn't seem right. I'm like, he's going to make us wash the other feet to teach us a lesson. I'm like, ooh, this, this, is, not, this is not exactly, exactly what this is about. So it's not team building, it's not a weapon, it's also not a sacrament, although some churches use it as that. Some churches have institutionalized it as part of their, their calendar, their year, and they do that. Cool, cool, I hope that has great meaning for them. So if it's not any of those things, what is it? Well, the answer is really pretty simple, and we're going to talk about it a little more. It's really about serving one another and really having true humility, right? True humility got to be pretty humble to wash somebody's feet, you know, and there's times in our life that's called upon when we're caring for children or our, our elderly, my mom who just passed away, my wife was wonderful at helping take care of her, I'm so thankful for her, but, um, you know, that's a time when you get humble, right, or you get low and you do what you got to do, right, to take care of people. Now that, that's kind of the attitude we're supposed to have about each other, really serving, be willing to do what needs to be done, and it's not just about that act, it's about it's not it's just about you doing the act, it's about you receiving that too. When other people want to serve you and receiving that with the right heart and in the right way. And really all, another way of saying it is the place I always land in almost every sermon. sermon it's, just, it's about love. So when we're, we're caring for each other deeply, and, and that was expressed by Jesus through the washing of feet, I always think of Paul when, in Romans 13.8 when he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the the ongoing debt of loving one another. I paraphrase a little bit. He's like, that's the thing you always owe and can never repay. You cannot love each other enough. Love is the beginning and end of everything God has done. Everything God has done. That's why the scripture, and I say it almost every time, God is love, shortest scripture, greatest meaning. If any of your theology doesn't um, 
a, a jibe with that. Something, something needs to be tinkered with. So now, let's, as we move to the text, I want to talk about the timeline a little bit more. Remember, a triumphal entry. They're sitting in, they're sitting in the uh, uh, upper room. They're having the Last Supper, and it's just on the eve of Judas betraying Jesus. So this is a charged environment. So let's let's work through the scripture. So the first couple of verses are just kind of a setup of what's going on. So it was before the Passover festival. So they're getting ready for this. Now, because of that, that means that anybody that was going to celebrate Passover, the men that were there, they would have cleaned themselves. They would have bathed, right? You know, they're not, it's part of the, part of the ceremonial preparation for the Passover. And so um, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now, I'm always astounded by these. I've said it before. I tend to say the same things a lot when I think they're important. I love the parts of Scripture where we see parts of Jesus' thinking in his mind and his intent and what his interior life. It's so much more than just, you know, seeing what he did. I love any phrase that says that he knew something or he thought something. Or So, so, so Jesus' self-awareness is kind of an interesting problem. You know, in theology, people, people often wonder when the baby Jesus became aware of, of who he really was, Right? So I don't think, you know, he was there nursing, you know, and looked up at Mary and said, Mother, may me, may me nurse outside the window of the synagogue so I might listen to my father's words, you know. <laughs> I don't think that happened, you know. So there was a point where, where that grew, and it grew very rapidly, as we know, whenever he was uh, lost in the caravan back from the Jerusalem and they couldn't find him. And he said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? I'm like, okay, the 12-year-old gets it. The 9-year-old probably did too. The 8-year-old, it fascinates me, fascinates me. But one thing is really clear is that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going there to die. And that's important because he willingly did that for you and for me, right? He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that it was about to come and he was going to leave this world and go to the Father. He was well aware of his origin as the Word of God together with the Father during creation, calling things into existence. I mean, Jesus... The word appears throughout the Old Testament. There's all sorts of interesting things about the pre-existent Jesus, as we like to say, the pre-existent Christ. So uh, he knew all this. And having known all that, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so it's so important he brought that in. And I love that way that that passage is written. He loved his own. Now, whenever you're uh, thinking about your relationship with Jesus and your loving relationship with Jesus, when he calls you his own, that's very significant. You know, in John, that's a theme throughout John, that God the Father gives people to Jesus, and Jesus takes possession of them, and he holds them tight, and he says, no one can take them from my grasp, right? I don't know where you are, with how you feel about your security as a believer. That's a word we sometimes use, but John is very firm in his um, teaching that, that we're very safe with Jesus and he doesn't let us go. And so in verse 2, it says, the evening meal was in progress. So whenever Jesus does what he does, they're sitting there, they're eating. It's in the middle of the meal, right? And who knows what they were talking about. It would have been fascinating to hear everything that was said. Someday we may know. And it says, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Another great insight now, we know that Judas, um, uh, from, from just something that just happened right before this, just days before this, Jesus was at um, the house of Lazarus, and one of Lazarus' sisters bathed his feet with perfume 
And, and Judas objected, said, that was very valuable. You should have given that to the poor. And he's like, she's done a beautiful thing here to me. She's preparing me for my burial. And, and, and it tells us back then that Judas was in charge of the money. He was in charge of the money and that he was a thief and helped himself. Do you think Jesus didn't know that? Of course he did. That, that, that fascinates me, what Jesus was doing there. But, but Jesus knew that he was going to betray him. And here we see the added thing. It's not just a man's sinful desires, his pride, his jealousy, his greed, whatever drove Judas. But the devil himself was actually involved in, in I love the, the translation here, prompting, prompting, just like he did Eve right in the garden, prompted Eve, causing her to question and tr- her trust in God. So Judas was faced with that prompting, prompting and gave in and was about to, to commit the most unthinkable of acts. So it goes on to say, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That's a really loaded sentence. If we had time to get into that, that goes back to some stuff in the Psalms and all this eschatological stuff, you know, his, uh, God's enemies being made his footstool, just so much about that. And then he had come from God and was returning to God. So uh, there's no question that Jesus had very clear and complete understanding of who he was, where he was going, what he was doing, and what the results would be. It's, it's absolutely clear. And so in the midst of all this, he's sitting there eating, all of a sudden he gets up. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, I don't know if Jesus had ever done that before. I think he's kind of this, uh, somebody that would chip in on chores, right? But, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's wrapped a towel around the waist, and after that he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is a really interesting act. And, and you know, if you uh, look at the culture of the time and some things in Scripture, uh, when, 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 uh, you know, in that day, they didn't have paved roads. Some of you probably already know all this if you had a study Bible and read it all. You know, uh, uh, people wore sandals. There was no paved roads. They were walking or they ran animals. Their feet would get filthy, right? And I'm not talking about normal filthy. I'm talking about kid filthy, like summertime kid playing in the yard with no shoes filthy. Do you remember? Kids might, you might still do it. Anybody, anybody got really dirty feet you can show us? Anybody's feet dirty? <laughs> But do you remember how dirty your feet used to get in that ring in the bathtub when you were done? That was always a sense of accomplishment, seeing that ring. I was like, yeah, this was a good day. So they would have been very dirty. And so in that culture, if you were a guest of someone, they would provide you with a pan of water when you came into the house so you could wash your feet, be more comfortable, be clean. And if they were um, uh, well-to-do or very kind, they might have someone in the household wash your feet for you. But that would be like a servant, or it might be um, a family member who was lower in the hierarchy as it was in that time, women and children. Didn't want to say it out loud, but uh, that's how it was then. And, and, but, but, but the head of the house, the patriarch, that would not happen. That would not happen. And, and you know, if I, I did a little bit of reading about this online, and everything you read online is true, but they were... They were uh, <laughs> They were quoting a lot of rabbinic sources and some of, the, some of the rabbinical writings about it. And rabbis were like, no, we touch no feet. We touch no feet. And so that was the attitude at the time of Jesus' day so that Jesus would get down on his hands and knees and do this is shocking, shocking. You know, if you and I care for a person, and I know there's people here, like Jeff, worked in nursing homes, there's times you have to provide personal care. That's, that's, that's beautiful. But for Jesus to do this, shocking, 
absolutely shocking. And so it's going on, and everything's uh, going the way it should. And then, like so many stories, he gets to Peter. Now, uh, a lot of things happen when Peter gets involved. <laughs> things go sideways. His, he's raw in his emotions, or he's cutting off somebody's ear with a sword. My favorite story about Peter. Peter's no joke, man. Peter's no joke. So he comes to Peter, and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You know, and, I, and again, he's shocked. I mean, uh, he's been watching it. You know, he got, got Thomas, he got Bartholomew. He got, I'm guessing he washes Judas' feet too. Can you imagine how that felt for Judas as he's pondering these things in his heart? Man, that's deep. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. So Peter's looking at this as just the act of washing, just making my feet clean. And Jesus is saying, I know you don't understand now. There's a lot, lot more to this. And Peter's incredulous. No, you shall never wash my feet. Never. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now us, with the, with the, with the benefit of hindsight and two millennia of Christian history and knowing about the resurrection and hearing every hymn washed in the blood, washed by the lamb, when we hear the word wash, we're like, oh yeah, he washes us. He washes away our sin. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That wasn't in Peter's mind. And so Jesus is, is saying, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is talking about something much deeper. Uh, something he's saying, it's that later you'll understand part. Now, when I read this, I think about when I was a kid and my mom wanted me to do something, she would kind of pull stuff like this. Now, when she wanted me to do something, it was usually trying to get me to eat some kind of food other than fried chicken. And because kids, you may not know this, the chicken nugget did not exist at all times. In the old days, in the 1960s, the chicken nugget was wrapped around a bone and you pulled it off the bone. It had a little handle. It was really good. And so, so like you guys, you like chicken nuggets, don't you? Any chicken nugget fans out there? Anybody here from Detroit? Um, uh, so, so um, now I, I totally forgot what I was saying. Oh, so my mom, when she would try and get me to do something, she'd say, if you love me, you'll do this. That is not what Jesus is doing. And I was a precocious and, and uh, disobedient child. And when my mom would say that, I'd say, I guess I don't love you. <laughs> and that's when I was like seven. So she, she, she called my bluff once too often on that one. And so he's saying, you have no part of me. And then so, so Peter kind of comes to life. He says, well, well, if that's the case, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's, let's just go full. Let's give me double whatever you're given. I don't understand, but if you're saying it's good, give it all to me. Give it all to me. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath, which you just did, you prepared for Passover, need only to wash your feet. Their whole body is clean. Your body's clean. He said, that's a clean hint. It's not about your body. He says, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Now he's not talking about the body anymore, is he? He's talking about inside, who had the faith and who didn't. And then he goes on to say, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not everyone was clean. Really poignant story about Judas. So then we get to the, to the real point. And like so many of Jesus' stories, at the end, he's got to go back and go, okay, let me tell you what this means. Let's, let's land this. Do you understand? He uses that phrase here. So when he finished washing his feet, their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. The meal continues. We know the meal continued because later 
he dips bread and juice and hands it to Judas. They're still eating, right? He interrupted the meal for this. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? I always like to picture the room. I always make, I always make Bartholomew the foil because I don't know anything about Bartholomew. You know, Jesus asks the question, he's like, you know, he's looking to other people to see if they know the answer. Or he's I was like, oh, I've got to check my phone, you know. <laughs> or what, what did, uh, I think somebody's at the door. Uh, so, so nobody answers him. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now, teacher and Lord, those are very different terms. You know, teachers, rabbi, a whole lot of the people that, killed Jesus were teachers, and they earned that title. They put in the time. They were schooled. They were Levites. You know, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. Lord is a whole other thing. If you're just a teacher, that may or may not mean anything, including me standing up here. But if you're the Lord, the Lord, you're the sovereign, you're the one in charge, that means something altogether. He's saying, you call me these things, he says, and you're right to do so. He owns that. He's claiming that. He's been claiming that. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is why I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now, if that's all we had to do was literally wash each other's feet, this would be one easy faith, wouldn't it? Be like, oh, I got foot washing scheduled for 1240. I'll, I'll meet you at the whatever, doing this, uh, whatever. It'd be simpler. But it's not about that. It's about adopting the attitude and being the person who's not only willing to do that, but wants to do that, wants to take the low position, wants to serve, wants to help, wants to give. That's hard to cultivate, isn't it? Because, you know, I think we all have it to some degree, but we all have parts we hold in reserve, right? And sometimes we're willing to do it and not called upon to do it. Sometimes we, we, we reach the limit. I could tell you stories. I don't have time. I could tell you stories where I reach the limit. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm supposed to do this, but I'm out. I'm out on this one. I'll work on it. So he said, you need to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he gets to the, the, the big point. He says, very, very truly, I almost said verily. That goes back to King James Day. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Jesus' master, disciple, servant, right? And no messenger is greater than one has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, that's a really interesting one for me, the blessed if you do them part. Understanding what it means to be blessed by this is a bit of a challenge, isn't it? It's a bit of a challenge. It's more of a complicated question. So uh, I'm going to be wrapping up here. So if the worship team wants to come up, we're going to be finishing up here. You're the worship team, right? <laughs> got some tambourines for the kids. You know, at Waymakers, we got this. We got we got so many stupid instruments, and we hand them out. And it's, uh, do you know the word cacophony? See, I'm not, I'm not doing air quotes. I'm just, I'm doing the Richard Nixon now because I stopped myself from doing air quotes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. So I want to talk about what uh, I want you to kind of take away from this, this story. Uh, so I want you to understand that sentence. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You don't have to understand how you're blessed to understand and trust Jesus that you will be blessed if you adopt this attitude. This is something you grow in and explore and learn. And this blessing isn't just in doing things for other people. It's also in receiving from others. Sometimes the greater blessing is what someone else does for you, where you learn more about the heart of God. And uh, 
I, I didn't put a lot of illustrations in here, but one just kept coming back to me. Uh, years ago, I was working, when I was still working for probation and parole, I was supervising this young lady named Sarah. Sarah was a delightful girl, delightful. She was from North Carolina. She had that beautiful accent. She was just sweet as pie. Sarah had some deep, deep problems. She uh, had a really serious mental illness. Uh, she had a really serious addiction. She had a lot of trauma. Didn't really have an intact family for the most part, not a fully intact family. She had a couple of good family members. So Sarah was, was pitiable, and I, I really loved Sarah. And so uh, one time Sarah went missing. Now that's something that happens quite a lot in the business I was in. And once somebody goes business, missing, you got to try and find them. If you can't find them, you got to issue a warrant for them, which is the part I liked the least about the job and really didn't want to issue a warrant for Sarah. And, uh, and then one night I got a call. We have a command center and they call your house and Sarah's found. She was back with her mom and her sister. They'd found her and we talked on the phone. Sarah wasn't doing well. Sarah was suicidal. She'd been on a drug bench. Stuff that was super familiar with me. Didn't, didn't phase me. And this is a time when I felt like I really had to take extra steps. I'm like, okay, take her to the emergency room. I'll meet you there. And this is at night. And so this is a, a dumpy city hospital, emergency room. I've been there many times. It's me, mom, sister, and Sarah. Sarah's there looking haggard and beat down and still sweet. Believer. Sarah was a believer. And uh, somehow it came up that Sarah hadn't eaten for two days because she was on a drug binge. And, uh, and so mom and sister, they got some change out. She went to the she went to the vending machine and she got a couple of things. And so I still remember one thing she got were some zingers. Now, you know what zingers are? So in the hierarchy of snack cakes, kids, you probably don't know this. <laughs> Top, since the Mickey banana flip is no longer in production, was Hostess, right? Anyone want to dispute that? Hostess, now it gets funny, Little Debbie, then Dolly Madison. <laughs> Dolly Madison made the zinger. Now, the only merit of the zinger was you got four little cakes in there, but they were half the size of Twinkie, so it was kind of funny. It was funny math, right? Four for the price of two. And so Sarah's there, and I'm just so happy to be there with her. I'm happy to be there with her family. I'm encouraging her, and I'm there because I heard her suicidal statements, and I'm there to make sure she gets admitted, right? I'm going to write an affidavit. And Sarah hasn't eaten in two days. She's in, into the first zinger, and she looks at me, and she holds the package out and says, want one? I was like, it sounds so silly. This girl's starving. She hasn't eaten in ten day, two days. And she's going to share her zingers with me. And I'm like, no thank you, no thank you. But I was like, wow, that's just... And it was entirely sincere. It wasn't just a gesture. She was ready to share her little, little, little bit of food with me because she thought I would enjoy it, right? She knew I'd eat, and obviously I don't not eat very often. And, you know, I loved Sarah, and, and, and she was doing really well when she got off supervision, and I learned just a couple of years ago that she had died of a fentanyl overdose some years later. It was very hard. And I believe she's with the Lord. So I received something from her that day. I really did. She taught me something about generosity, and we're talking about the poor. The generosity of the poor is different than our generosity, and maybe you've seen it. Maybe you are that person. So just know you'll be blessed by giving and receiving. And so when you think about doing something, see, uh, receive the idea of serving as a blessing to you. You get more than you're going to give. And when somebody re uh, serves you, receive that with reverence. You know, that's such a good word. I chose that word carefully. You know, it might be a pittance. It might be a zinger, right? 
It might be something you're like, I got 40 of those in my car, you know? Or, oh, why would I want that? I mean, you know, at Waymaker, sometimes people give me gifts and they're frequently from our thrift store, right? They'll just hand me something that I don't want, you know? I don't want, like one of the, one of the uh, that I don't need, but, but I treasure those things. One girl gave me a coffee mug that I know came from the next room. She's like, I got this for you. And I was like, awesome. It's a Universal Studios mug. I think that's in Florida. It's blue. You know, I still use it. And I, I received it how it was meant to be given. And so that gets the last kind of point I want you to ponder is um, living this life in the context of our series about uh, the gospel with the poor opens the door for this, right? If we're all serving at the lowest levels, if nothing's off the table, it makes service accessible to everybody. If our service only consists of standing up here teaching, leading worship, writing a book, you know, whatever those, those things that are seen as more important, right? More important. If that's all there is, how do they participate? How do they participate? And that's part of the puzzle I'm trying to unlock. And when we unlock that and we live that, it changes what the church is and it becomes an institution like no other where people can fully participate no matter what they don't have, right? Whether that's material possessions, intellectual capacity, or whether they're constantly delusional and psychotic, there's still something for them, there's still a place for them. And so, I always get kind of confused here at the end. I'm going to be bringing somebody up here to do communion here in a second. But, but uh, we always talk about what to take away, what I want you to do. We've called it a challenge. We've called, I don't know what we call it now. But there's, but there's three things I want you to consider doing. First, do exactly what Jesus said to the disciples when he said, do you understand? Do you understand? If you read this story and you're still, it's still foggy like it is with me, Ask yourself, do I understand this? Do I really understand it means to live like this and be like this? Because it's not just washing somebody's feet or helping somebody with a spare tire, you know? It's more than that. Ask God to help you understand. Search yourself. Sometimes we need to ask for healing. You know, some of the barriers to this, one is pride. If pride is something that's a barrier for you, you need healing from that. And that starts with confession. And a day of communion is a perfect time for that. If there's anything in you that has those lines that you won't go past, you need to be critically examining those. But sometimes the healing is something different. When we start talking about serving people, there's trauma, there's fear of inadequacy, there's so many wounds that we bring into that equation that keep us locked out of this blessing. So the other thing I'd like you to do is ask you to, to, uh, uh, ask you to uh, pray for healing for yourself as part of this. And just last the simplest. Just embrace the idea. Just say, okay, I accept that this is a blessing. This is something I want to do. Make a commitment in your heart, whatever that is.